All right, today we're joined by longtime friend and colleague, Paul Frields. How are you doing, John? Pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm really happy to be here. This whole meeting kick that I got on, I'm convinced it would have not have happened if I hadn't been the secretary on the Fedora board, I hadn't met you, and I hadn't taken a class at Portland State University. It was like a continuing education class and program manage, or in it was project management class. Yeah. But the, it was a two-day class called facilitating team meetings or something. And I mm. took it because I was like, um, I was kind of going through one of those slow periods in my career. And I was just like, I'll take some classes. And, and I thought that this class was just going to be one of those things where you take notes and go home and feel better. And instead it was like half or three quarters of the class was actually facilitating real meetings. Right. And in the process of doing that, I got all these like techniques. And I remember coming back and meeting with you because we would have like this meet, this weekly session to say, okay, we've got a board meeting next week. <laughs> What's on the agenda? And I would kind of help run the agenda and steer things. I, I think we actually pioneered some techniques when we yes. were working with the Fedora board. And, and some of those techniques have actually, like they're really prevalent now at Red Hat. And, and I'm not sure if they were, I don't know if they were like pioneered in a global sense, but, you know, definitely in Fedora, you know, hundred percent cert for certain. And yes, at Red Hat, I'm I, I would not be surprised if we were the first to do some of those things. As no, well. I'll take I'll well at least because at least on the program management team, I'll definitely take credit for it. Because <laughs> with the board, with the board, what we were doing was we were using Gobby, which is running in a box like mm-hmm. under your desk somewhere at home. <laughs> and we were using this Gobby server to do collaborative. So I was so I graduated from being the secretary of the board to being on the board. Yeah. And at that point, there was no secretary. And so it was like, well, how are we going to do minutes every week? And we'd kind of been using Gabi and Fedora to yeah. like collaboratively do schedules and stuff. And so... Do your listeners know know about Gabi? Do they know what Gabi is? Great, great point. Yeah, well, tell they, us about Gabi. So if they don't, just, you know, to, to clue people in, just so this isn't like, you know, this isn't all in-jokes or Total something like geek that. Fest. We're going to have, we're going to have some in-jokes for sure, but maybe this is not one of them. But um, yeah, so Gabi is like, it's based, it's, it's a, a, a utility that allows people to bring up like a text pad, but they're actually interacting with a server and that server can be connected to multiple clients. So a lot of people could have a Gabi app up on their computer editing the same document. Now that doesn't sound very revolutionary right now, of course, because we've now we've come, you know, we've become used to things like Google Docs, right? And right. I would assume I would assume I don't know Office Live, but I would assume that it does similar things nowadays. But back in the days that we're talking about, I mean, it really wasn't that prevalent. Google Docs didn't exist because this was during the time when technologies like Google Wave had not really happened yet. And it was soon after, um, I think it was soon after Abby came around that other things started to develop around the same time people realized that this collaborative editing would, you know, was going to be important and, and that it was really helpful for people to get things done. Yeah, but the interesting thing too is most people at that time were using it for code, I think. Yeah, yeah, you would and we were using it to like write. I was using it to create schedules. Like I was creating schedules of people around the world. Yep. Using IRC and Gobby because we didn't use the telephone. Yeah. <laughs> to create schedules, and then it was meeting minutes, and so yeah, so so Paul and I were strategizing. We was scheme and strategize the week before a Fedora meeting. This is when I was, just to be clear, this is when I was still the secretary, not when I was a board member. 
but we would we would kind of you know get together and say okay so we've got this agenda next week we've got a couple easy topics here and then i think the topic that was always on the agenda that that was really difficult to what was i think it was what is fedora's target oh, what is our target, our target audience? audience which was like <laughs> <laughs> maybe every, still going every time on i don't somebody know says target audience now i kind of i have a little <laughs> my my heart I'll skips to me yeah my eye twitches uncontrollably <laughs> so through this process though we started using gobby and then i started i set up a gobby server internal to red hat and started using it for a couple meetings and then somewhere along the lines one of my colleagues set up an etherpad server. So Etherpad is another, I guess, that, depending on how you trace its lineage, it may or may not have had some relation to Google it, it, Wave. It, it, Etherpad that, kind of like, it kind of arose from the rubble of Google Wave. Like okay. that was one of the technologies that stuck around. And I, I think they actually, like it eventually, probably it, it, it impacted or influenced the folks who worked on the collaborative features in, in the Google uh, apps online, I would imagine. So yeah, so anyway, eventually someone set up an Etherpad server inside Red Hat, kind of a, I don't know if it was a, a rogue server, some, just something under someone's <laughs> desk. We started using it, and then it was like supported by the engineering team, kind of, and then eventually it got too big to corporate kill, supported basically. it. It got that? too big to kill. Yeah, did, <laughs> which is kind of the story of Linux, you know, infiltrating organizations where, you know, someone's running this rogue Linux box under their desk and... Uh, you know, for email or whatever, and eventually it takes over the company. We definitely, uh, yeah. So. I mean, we definitely live the ethos at Red Hat. It's not a lie. Yeah, it's not. It's not a made up story. <laughs> no, it's definitely true. So, what are you doing now? So, you were a Fedora board member, then you went and did RHEL. Yeah, yeah. What did you do with RHEL? RHEL stands for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. For those not in the <laughs> right, uh, after my Fedora stint. Uh, as the the project leader, and I I finished that I think in around the summer of 2010. My manager and I, my manager is Tim Burke, who's now um, Red Hat's vice president of infrastructure engineering, and uh, which is a real fancy title, but basically he's got like all of the Rel folks under him, and I think he's got a bunch of other folks like uh, I, I the, the the it's always changing, but I think like cloud folks also are are under his uh, wing as well. And uh, and some other miscellaneous groups as well. Um, I, I don't know the whole org chart honestly at this point. But anyway, so Tim was my uh, my manager at that time, and we sort of built a a, a temporary landing job. Uh, we called it an operations manager, and basically what it involved was trying to do some useful cross departmental work looking into various metrics, looking into processes that needed fixing. And, you know, in a way, I also kind of worked like like his major domo, right? I Like, I kind of like to think of myself as like being the wolf from, uh, from Pulp Fiction, but I don't think I was really the wolf. I think I was more like a plumber, you know, and like there's a little <laughs> bit of crack showing. And yeah, it was not pretty, I'm sure, for when I showed up to those meetings. But so I did that for a while. And operations manager, we kind of laughed about it after a while because it really sounded like somebody just like, goes and keeps the pipes running and the lights on and things like that. <laughs> like I said, a very facility management-like. But he came to me in the fall and and said, hey, I think I may have found something that is going to interest you. And it was essentially being the R&D coordinator for RHEL 7, which, you know, didn't exist yet, right? We were not, we did not yet have 
uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 6 out the door, but it was coming, you know, imminent at that point. And so he asked me if I was interested in doing uh, this kind of role for RHEL 7, where I would be working with a lot of the managers that I knew in the engineering area, um, acting as a go-between with um, the quality assurance folks and docs team and um, product management, um, working with the product marketing folks. Um, so, so really kind of being a representative at that, at that kind of functional level. And I honestly didn't feel ready for it, but because the way that I got to Red Hat and, and because of the fact that I, I loved Red Hat so much and I was enjoying my career so much at that point, the way I got to Red Hat was basically like leaping when I was in fact afraid. Um, I said, well, what the hell I'll do it again. And so I, you know, I, I held my nose and, and jumped in. And it was great. It was uh, it was about four years of my life that I spent in that role, and very challenging, sometimes frustrating, almost always rewarding. It was really cool, but it, you know, it required a lot of the skills that I think I kind of learned in working with you. You know, um, especially when it came to putting together a good meeting. Right, you did have to bring a lot of people together and come to agreement or consensus on how something was going to work wasn't always easy and what the the path wasn't always clear and sometimes my function wasn't really to drive like a point of view sometimes it was really trying to bring together some engineering managers who weren't seeing eye to eye and kind of come up with a way that everybody could lose as little as possible and win as much as possible and i think that really helped so what are some of the other good things that you learned through that experience. So I learned you have to a lot of times you have to get, you have to get outside your own point of view, right? I was representing the R&D group and I found that some of my biggest rewarding moments came when I actually put aside that role once in a while and instead of just acting like an advocate for that for what I understood that group's priorities to be to really try and understand what the person across the table was looking for like a lot of times that might be product management um you know who are looking for a certain capability and it just doesn't seem possible the way things are built right now right and i'm doing air quotes around that right now the listeners can't see but i'm doing air quotes what i think was rewarding out of out of conversations i had with them was stepping outside that role thinking about things from their role's point of view and really um, just just kind of dropping the legacy notion of what we're doing and thinking, well, what if, right? And then thinking through that series of concepts. Well, what if we did this? And then what if following on that, right? We took a different step and so on and so forth. And And it was really amazing that sometimes we could find a better solution than than what seemed like the only alternative, which you know was insanity. I wish I had a good. I wish I had a good uh, a good example of this. One doesn't come to mind right away, but can you think of any examples of maybe a big failure that ultimately turned into success or like kind of took you to the next level? Um, yeah. So here's an example of yeah a failure that led to something better. Tracking is was, well, I shouldn't say is, it was a problem for 
how we were able to kind of trace from requirements or from customer use cases through to the completion of really technical bits of the platform, right? Which are done at the level of like issues in a tracker, right? Or bugs in our case in Bugzilla, right? Which is Red Hat's issue tracker for our products. And we use that internally as well. So tracing things through on that long path from what a customer wants, how do you translate that into a requirement into a, and that requirement becomes like uh, some sort of specification, right? Functional or otherwise. And then there has to be like an implementation that happens. And then, you know, all the technical work that needs to occur in the code to make that happen. Tracing through all of those pieces is really difficult. I think most people who work in uh, large software projects would would probably be right with me. May, they may have, they may be, their eye may be twitching right now and that they're turning this off. So I hope not. We had a really hard time coming up with a system that would worked well for anyone to do that, right? It basically worked it worked in a mediocre way for those of us doing the tracking and it barely worked at all for people who had to provide input and status for for tracking and we basically sort of kicked the can down the road on that problem uh inside red hat during rel 7 and it was pretty painful but the outcome is that the organization as a whole has a much better appreciation now for for needing to have a real a real kind of life cycle management solution, right? Something where you actually look at what's you know what is the customer looking for and then again translate down that path into what it means for the software engineer or the quality engineer to do their work. So yeah, it seems like there's a lot more buy-in for 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 that kind of system nowadays. And I think, <laughs> I think essentially it was our refusal to compromise on actually tracking those things in RHEL 7, yet not having a great system to do it, is what kind of broke, like it, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, more or less, you know, in a positive way, hopefully. So how did you transition from the RHEL 7? So RHEL 7 goes GA your position or your role effectively ends or you're like, Hey, I want to do <laughs> this something like new turning now. into a big explanation of my career path at Red Hat, how I got where I am. Well, who knows? Maybe someone listening to this wants to work at Red Hat. Yeah, and they can yeah. so, follow I mean, you it's a great example. place because, you know, you really can forge new, you know, new kinds of roles. Um, if, if you're passionate about them and you're, you know, you're willing to do some legwork, you know, in my case, I was, um, coming down the home stretch for rel seven. And what that means for us is a public beta, Right, which happened in I think around 2013, and um, you know our schedule was set at that point, and and we knew we were we were kind of coming in, like I said, the home stretch to uh, the summer of 2014, which was going to be the release, um, the GA for Rel Seven, and it was around that time that um, I kind of realized, well, I, I enjoyed doing this for this product, but I don't think I want to do another one of them, right? Not in this, at least not in this role. And I mentioned it to my um, to my manager at the time, uh, who's Denise Dumas, um, and she's now a VP of Linux Engineering. And I, I still work for her in a sense, although some like as the company has grown, the levels have grown. Like she's a few levels away from me now, whereas I used to, you know, be one of her direct reports. But I, I kind of approached her and said, 
you know, here's where I think I am in my career. Uh, you know, I really enjoy doing this. Um, doing it again is not my first choice, but you know, it's something I would consider as a, you know, as a backup plan or something, if there's really nothing else available. But I told her I would really be interested, I think, in stepping off where I am and and getting into a management track because I'm older than a lot of the the people that I know and work with around Red Hat at the engineering level. And beyond that, I have nowhere near their level of skill, right? I was a, a basket weaver in college. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was, my, my major was political <laughs> science. I mean, I have... I have a background in computers just, you know, as a hobbyist and then later as a as a professional that kind of grew out of that that avocation. But, you know, I'm not a I'm not a programmer by trade. Um, you know, I'm more a dabbler. I, I mean, I've been a sysadmin and it served me well then to have that kind of broad base. Um, but I, you know, I don't have I don't have the the skills or the knowledge, I think, to be a uh an engineer at the level that that Red Hat needs. But you know, I felt pretty good about my my soft skills and you know my ability to like develop develop relationships with people and um to work you know bring people together to work together and and pursue you know specific ends and so I felt like well maybe this is my chance it's you know I'm not getting any younger and so basically you know I just you know kind of approached her with this idea and you know a, a slot opened up and as luck would have it, that it was the Fedora engineering team. So I knew the project. I knew the people who were on it. I'd worked with them um, for a long time before that, and uh, it was just like it was a perfect match for what I was what I was hoping to do. And uh, and it's been you know it's been a fantastic uh, couple of years. I've been doing this now, I guess ostensibly, um, almost three years. I've been in this job. Um, although I, I I do tell people, you know, there was like a six months at the top where I was still really involved in RHEL 7. And I basically, like all I did was sort of, you know, approve, <laughs> approve, leave and yeah, give, yeah. <laughs> give expensive parts. <laughs> Just, you know, held on as long as I could until I could really concentrate and sink my teeth into, into what it means to manage people. And I'm, I'm still, I still don't think I'm good at it. Like I, I've reached, uh, I think I've reached a minimal level of proficiency and I'm, you know, still learning. What do you like most about it? I think the thing I love most about it is when people on the team get to a successful point that they were hoping to reach and just like feeling a lot of joy and pride for them. Like that's that to me is the best part of my week when somebody attains a goal that they've been trying to reach and I can kind of celebrate that with them and with the rest of the team. That's my favorite part by far. And I think also just the conversations that we sometimes have, not even necessarily about work, but you know, just about the water cooler, right? Because I'm I'm remote, uh, and most of the team is remote as well. So there's not there is not often a point in time where I really see everybody on the team. You know, it's really our face to face comes uh, in video, you know, video calls during the week, and I really like those because it makes me feel connected. Um, to the to the rest of the team and to the organization. Well, I think that's a one extremely unique thing about Red Hat, especially in the time that you and I first started working together. There were not that many people. In fact, I don't think I knew anyone else that worked remote besides... Remote work is like, that seems like that's this whole, that's like a whole topic waiting to be plumbed, like to, to make that happen well. And I, you know, I, 
my job at Red Hat was my first job in in the tech industry and you know my first job as a remote employee and i was pe- i was petrified when i started i was mm. because i thought i don't know i think i'm one of those people who is very i'm very neurotic about maybe my my propensity to to fail at something i don't know i don't know what it i think i'm a little like i'm a little hard on myself sometimes about that it it, it, it served maybe a lot and it served <laughs> no no john not just a little um <laughs> But it, but it served me well, I think, in this case, because I was so worried about, well, how can I fail at being a remote worker? Well, there's many ways to do it. One of them is to just lose your sense of responsibility and getting things done and you know, turn into somebody who watches you know, Oprah on the couch. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll just watch TV while I'm doing this because that'll really help me concentrate and get my tasks done or whatever. It may sound very rudimentary, but you know, I, I really did worry about that. And I think that just that level of terror prompted me to go further than I would have other otherwise, right? To really like try and go above and beyond. And eventually I think I found a balance in in how to do that properly and and have a good work-life balance. But uh I think a lot of the reason I found that balance is in, you know, conversations with you and talking about, you know, where to spend your cycles to be effective. And it's not just about trying to be present all the time for everyone. It's about choosing the time to be present, choosing the time to be absent, right? And when you're present, what are your priorities? And what are you doing to make it as easy as possible for yourself to drive those and get those done? I think you let you hit something really difficult there. I like how you put it, which is choosing not to be present. Because I find... I mean, as a remote, yeah, there's this is a whole separate episode that we have to do at another time. We, we'll I, we'll we'll save the good we'll save some a lot of the good stuff for later. But but I don't know about you, but at me as a remote, and I'm yeah, this is my tenth year in a row being remote for Red Hat. So I've been with Red Hat twelve years, going on thirteen. Mm-hmm. Spent two of right. them in the Westford office in Massachusetts, and then moved to Portland, Oregon. But for me, it was oh, I've got to be an IRC. And so for those of you out it's, there that don't know what IRC is, it's Slack, but it's not the as modern pretty. day equivalent is Slack. <laughs> so, but that for me, for the longest time, it was like, well, I've got to make sure I'm logged onto IRC and I got to make sure that I respond. If someone pings me for something, I got to make sure that I respond right. right away. So it doesn't look like I wasn't at my desk. And that also can translate into, well, I better check my email first thing. I need to make sure I respond to email and you end in this you can end up in this compulsive cycle of yeah you turn yourself inside out into knots like well am I not like got to be okay got to log into IRC first thing got to check my email first thing yeah. the worst thing you can do on a lot of days is check your email the first thing of the day yeah you be it be, it makes you it's funny cuz like you you talk all of those things that you talked about are about responding to other people and so immediately like you're putting yourself in a yes. reactive role all the time as opposed to being proactive about things right you're subject to other people's yes. whims yes. and and of course you know we all want to be of service to people that we need to be and you know this is really important to me as a manager right to be of service to the people who are on my team it's not just about what i want them to do um, even more of the time, it's really about making sure that when they are having a problem that I can respond to them and, and fix that problem for them, or in some cases throw the, you know, elucidate the problem in some way or illuminate it and, 
throw it back to them and say, okay, I've given you some advice, but this is really your problem to solve, right? But either way, being there to respond is important, but there's a lot to, there's a lot to work other than that, right? I mean, you have your own projects that you're trying to get done. And if you're always sort of on call for everyone, you're never on call for yourself. Like you're never able to be accountable. Well, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. You're in this constant interrupt driven. Okay. Let me, I, I got to really, you know, buckle down and get this project moving and 15 minutes into it, someone pings you for something that they need. So you, you help them. Then you, tr- I don't know about you, but I find that those are sometimes the most utterly exhausting days where you got absolutely nothing done. And all you did was multi fail, multitask, multi fail like entire day, but you've got like nothing to show for it. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. no, for sure that I agree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we definitely have to come back to this. We definitely do. So to round this, to kind of round us out, maybe bring us full circle. I think there's a great tie in here. You found some great life balance. I didn't even know this about you. You play the bass, and he plays a mean bass, people. I'm going to have to link to some of your SoundCloud recordings. Yeah, I may be down on my management ability yet. Like, I'm not yet, I have not yet reached what I would consider a full level of proficiency as a manager, but I think I'm a pretty decent bass player, though. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe we should have some of your That's people right. you on should, here. Right. Get to you the should, bottom of this. Go, go conduct some, <laughs> some band on the street interviews and see what people say. Yeah, yeah. So how? So as I recall, like when you were doing Fedora, like you were all in on Fedora, and you also had some extenuating circumstances with some things that happened during the Fedora time. But I remember kind of as you were leaving and transitioning from that, you said, wow. I, maybe I went in a little too deep on the work thing there. So I know one of the things that you ended up branching yeah, out into yeah. was music and playing the bass. Like, how did that come about? And Yeah, so, well, I've actually, so I've been a musician, I mean, ever since I was a, a kid. And, you know, I would play, if there was an instrument around the house, I would pick it up and, and figure out how to play it. And I was in band and marching band and things like that. I was you know, big marching band geek, hard to believe, right? Um, big marching band geek um, in in high school. Um, I played clarinet, alto clarinet, some saxophone. Um, when I went to college, um, that's actually when I picked up the bass. So, you know, I've been playing, I've been playing bass now for, um, gosh, uh, well over 25 years at this point. Yeah. So, so when I, when I got to Red Hat, um, I think I kind of fell into that, that I think you described it as like this, this pit of, of work, just you know, really getting ensnared in, working longer and longer hours my my work life balance was a big mess and as i learned to prioritize and i learned to kind of take accountability for my own schedule and for prioritizing the things i had to do and that everything is not equal priority um and that there are things that you can let you know you can let go right it's okay to do that as long as you know why and what the you know what the risks or the knock on effects are going to be and you're willing to live with those um, and the people around you that you are accountable to, if they're willing to live with those, right? So, yeah. So uh, eventually, I kind of came out of that pit, and and I realized, man, I I really have been not happy. Like I haven't been living a very full and happy life now for a year and a half or two. And I think what's been missing is playing music. And so, you know, really, I just I kind of reconnected with uh, some people that I knew um, in in my area. And, uh, you know, ended up getting back into the, into the scene and playing. I even, you know, reached out into my local area. See, I, I always felt that, 
yeah, the only way for me to play really was to go back and play with people that I knew well and I'd had successful outings and bands with. And, you know, I was doing that, you know, driving quite a bit on the weekends up to Northern Virginia and Southern Maryland to do that. Um, I live in Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is about 60 miles or 100 kilometers for you Europeans uh, south of of Washington. And um, and that's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a good ways to go, right, to go play a gig until the wee hours of the morning. And then, you know, you have to pack everything up, drive home. And by the time I was getting home, it was like 3.30 or 4 in the morning. And and I, I thought to myself, man, you know, I wonder if there's any, I know there are musicians around me. I wonder if any of them are, you know, worth reaching out to and playing with. And so I kind of discovered that there was a really vibrant local scene near me that I just never connected with and never really reached out to. And this, this is, yeah, this is probably a whole other. So how do you do that? Do you just post on Craigslist? Actually, what? <laughs> what I did is I looked around for open mics, right? An open mic session is basically where you usually will have like a musician or a small group of musicians who uh, host an open mic. Like it'll be at a venue and they'll provide the the PA gear, right? So mics and speakers and so forth so you can be heard. Um, occasionally they'll provide a little other gear too, but you you can't always count on it. And other musicians are invited to bring their instruments, their gear, and um, and play, right? And everybody gets a turn, right? You sign up on a sign-up sheet and you get a turn to be heard. Now, if you're like me and you're a bass player, typically you're not just going to get up and play, you know, solo bass. I mean, there are people who do that and they are phenomenal, like, you know, the Victor Wootens of the world or the uh, Michael Manrings of the world um, and others. They're phenomenal. But that's not my cup of tea. I don't really enjoy that kind of music. I enjoy being a supporting player. And so for me, it was a chance to go meet other musicians and play their music, right? Um, and sometimes, you know, not things they necessarily wrote, but things that they like to play. Well, and bass really fills in the gaps. Like, so my wife plays bluegrass banjo, and she's been after me to learn an instrument so we can go to gigs and stuff together, which bluegrass is not. It's growing on me, but it's not quite my thing. But she tells me, like, if you're yeah. a bass player, like, people love you. And it's true. I've gone to jams and heard her play with people where when there's a bass player, yeah. it completely rounds out the sound of the group in a way with no bass player. So is that kind of, like, is that the same with you where, like, people just loved having a bass player? <laughs> you know, you can you can pick up on this if you if you look at the... Um the entirety of like musician jokedom, like the majority of jokes out there uh, that put down musicians, like the bass player is second only to the drummer. Like you'll, you know, you'll. Oh, and banjo players take a lot of heat too. Do they? Well, maybe, maybe it's more equal. Maybe it's more equal than, you know, maybe it, ba the bass jokes hurt more. Maybe that's what it is. And so I've kind of like, they're outsized. It's an outsized population of jokes in my opinion, but, um, especially being as as important as i i think bass is to the to the music cuz it really is it's it's foundational if you've got a bunch of drums and a bunch of guitars it really does usually um with with some notable exceptions right it's not going to sound very good the bass gives it gives shape to the rhythm it gives it gives shape to the the chords that are going on and it gives a shape to the melodic and harmonic movement of the song. And so without it, 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, so it's it like, like glue and it's, you know, it is, it's, it's like the, it's the glue you can't do without. Um, it really is important. So, and it's, and it's also very supportive and, and, uh, you know, you can change it really, you know, really it's a position of great power and great responsibility. I always tell people it's like being Spider-Man with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility. So you're Spider-Man and you're just turning up to these yeah. open mics, like hoping for people that need a bass player or like, yeah, how's this, yeah. Like- and, and, you know, you really just, you show up to these open mics, just hoping to, to help people out. Right. Um, you know, somebody's going to go up, oh, I'm going to play. I don't know, something easy. A lot of these open mics are blues, right? Because the blues forms are very, very easy to learn and you can play them in any key. If you know, oh, this is going to be a 12, a standard 12 bar with a quick four, you know that that means something and that all you need to know is what key it's in and you're, you're, you're good to go. And then you can listen to the drums for the rhythm and just go for it. Yeah. That's, I mean, somebody will say, oh, let's do sweet home Chicago in a flat. Okay, great. Ready to go. Right. And you just hope that the drummer behind you is, you know, solid enough that you can kind of just lay it down with him. But yeah, I've got, so, so I, you know, I met people locally, but I also have, you know, a couple bands. I've one of my own now that I put together, which, you know, I, like I said, I used to be playing uh, up North with a lot of people. And when I met some great local musicians, like I kind of started connecting with them and sort of picking them out one by one, like this guy, this guy's got what I was looking for. Right. And then assembling out of that a band and we play a lot of 70s uh 60s and 70s soul and funk you know stuff that i loved growing up motown and and uh i think up until you know up into the disco era like that stuff i really love great bass parts yeah yeah just just a just a you smattering play some disco. just a smattering i yeah i mean <laughs> we do you know do a little cool in the gang or something like that we do get down on it we do, oh, I love we, it. we do we do we, we celebrate those good it. times um yeah i mean stuff like that bobby womack and uh johnny guitar watson we do a little prince we do you know we do uh we do a little bit of modern stuff too like here and there we'll do um like john mayer we've done um um daft punk uh you know that they had that hit that was really big we played that because if you've got a good rhythm section it's fun to do those kind of songs um so yeah so that so that's my band, and then uh, also there's another band that I play with now too that is more of a Texas blues kind of band, but they also add in a bit of like real authentic soul flavor, and it's a trio. Whereas my band is like depending on the the surroundings and depending on the the gig, it's usually five or six pieces. The this other band that I'm in is a trio, and the great thing about being in a trio is that every part matters, like every player matters. You got drum, bass, and guitar, and they, they it really is like a it's a three-legged table, and without all three of the legs working, everything falls apart. So you're you have to be strong like every minute of every gig. Whereas with you know a five or six piece band or or bigger, parts can be you know rearranged. Somebody might drop out here and come back in another place. The, not usually the bass, but you know uh, every once in a while, even that even that is acceptable depending on what you're doing. Um, we use that to our to our advantage to like have dynamics, right? Where you can like, if you try, if the bass drops out for, you know, a few bars, eight or 16 bars or something, and then you come back in, back in, like the energy, the fact that the energy has changed so drastically, like you've gone from no, you know, no low frequency information, right? To bringing it back in, like the dynamics of the band change and it just like reinvigorates everything. So people are dancing like, well, 
like dance even harder. It's amazing. So how do you think we should round this one out? Any last thoughts, epiphanies? Okay, so so I feel like one of the things maybe that we didn't explore, you might want to bring this back into the beginning um, somehow, like fix it in post, <laughs> um, is like our our thing about like the the way that we um, the way that we used our our gobby sessions, which I don't I don't remember if I've heard I've heard you mention this in passing in another in another one of your podcasts, but the way that we did our meeting notes where basically like everybody like everybody's committed to um to helping scribe the meeting notes and then at a certain point like we had an agreement okay if you leave the like anybody is free to look over this and edit it right like should we should oh, we yes. maybe talk a, just a minute about that just yes i feel like this got really heavy about my background and it's so boring no one's gonna care no i i drove us there i, w- I wanted to know I want people to know Paul Frills better. So, no, I think, well, no, you hit on something interesting, which is, yeah, and I use this, I use this without even thinking about it now, but yes, you're right. So, and I think someone, I had a listener that was asking a question, like, how do you do this collaborative meeting thing? So this is another thing that fits in there. Maybe I didn't mention this before. Yeah, so I think we came... Steer me if I get this wrong. But yeah, I think we came to the place where there was kind of this implicit assumption, and we would say it explicitly, which is we're capturing, and I still do this today, I'm capturing the notes as we go. If you don't like the action item that you got <laughs> or who we assigned it to, change the like change the notes. I mean, it'd be helpful to raise that with the people who are here so that they can follow along, but change the notes and you are giving your implicit approval to the minutes by being yeah. at this meeting and having access to this. Now it's a shared document, but then it was this gobby session. And once you leave, that's pretty much like you were here. So the minute you're gone, we assume that whatever was here when the meeting happened while you were here, you agree to, and we're going to send it out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, yeah, I think that, that, that is a, that I think that's pretty accurate. Um, you know, and it really was about it really about it was about everybody sharing the responsibility. And in that case, I think it was one of those rare occasions where you can have everybody share accountability. Like it's it's mm. usually hard to do that the way we think of accountability, at least um, you know, in a racy model at Red Hat, where one person is accountable, right? I would say one person's accountable for sending out the notes and like, you know, having to move them on. Yeah, and in the case of the board, that's really insightful. I had never thought of it that way. Yeah, in the case of the board, it was we as a board, we you as a board member and we as a board agree that this is how we want this discussion and this decision to go out to the community. Right, right. This is a record of what we talked about, and you know that that was important. If you know, just so you know, people don't misunderstand. You know, the object there is not to like wallpaper over things that happen in the meeting, but occasionally, you know, meeting notes will um, sometimes get into territory that you don't, that it's not necessarily appropriate to share with everybody. Like, especially in the, um, maybe in the case of, I don't know, maybe there's a case of bad behavior in the community or personal, maybe there's a yeah. Yeah, personnel issue or a legal issue or something like that. And you may not be able to go into all the detail that you would want to, but at the same time, you want to have something there that's representative of the discussion and the decision. And that shared responsibility for the notes, 
you know, also brought with it the understanding that, okay, you know, yeah, we're, we've all recorded this. So if, if you, if you want to have some say in how this is represented, right, then you're responsible to take a look through the notes and make sure that that's accurate before you leave the session. Because anything that happens to these notes up until the time, you know, that they're, you know, that, that everybody's disperses, right. We're all, we're all going to share, you know, we all share yes. the accountability for them. Yes. It, it was a, it was an incentive to pay attention and to make sure that things were accurate. And so it was not just about John or Paul, you know, typing fast enough to, to cover everything, but rather, you know, if there's something wrong here, the person who we're quoting you know, may come, they may end up getting called on the carpet or, 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 you know, asked to answer about what they, what they said. And if we didn't capture it right, you know, certainly we don't want to do that. We want to make sure everything's accurate, but you know, we can't possibly be a hundred percent accurate all the time. So getting everybody to share that responsibility is important. Well, and the, the, I think this is a good close. The practical outcome of this too was, and still today, rarely, if never, does someone reply to the minutes that I'll send out over email saying, that's not what we discussed? Right. I mean, I don't know about you, but before doing this, either at Red Hat or in other companies, you have a meeting, someone sends out the notes, and then you spend 25 emails arguing over who really, like what the decision was, who really owns it. There's none of that. Right. With this approach, there's absolutely, like there's no surprises. Yeah, it's- which. That's never yeah. happened to me either. Yeah, since since starting to use that shared that shared note taking, um, as long as you have that understanding up front and people know what their level of ownership is, I've I've never had that. Uh, I've never had a backlash or or any kind of um, negative outcome from that. Right, and that's the key part too: is getting setting that expectation up front mm-hmm. is key to yeah, just the overall outcome for sure. Well, thanks for coming by today, Paul. Thanks for having I me, I hope John. we can do this again. I, I really think we need to dive into this uh, tips for remotees, or we'll come up with some creative yeah. clickbait title I'm, to uh, I'm here, just boost the podcast numbers. I'm here whenever you want me, man. Every Any day, any week, you let me know. This is the, the most fun I, I've had this week so far. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to The John Polster Show. Notes, links, and all that other good stuff for this episode are at johnpolster.com slash podcast. If you have questions or ideas around the podcast, send those to podcast at johnpolster.com. 